The name of our podcast, Techsequences, is really a mashup of two words, technology and consequences. We are fascinated by the consequences, intended or unintended, of the internet and related technologies for the way we live, play, and work. We are your hosts, Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. We started our careers at the dawn of the internet and have been friends, colleagues, and comrades in arms for the better part of 20 years. In this podcast, we examine the impact internet-related technologies have made or may make in our lives. My name is Alexa Rod. And I'm Leslie Daigle. Welcome to Techsequences. Leonardo da Vinci was equal parts scientist and artist, and yet even he insisted that art is not possible if it's not rooted in nature and nurtured by spirit. He once said, where the spirit does not work with the hand, there is no art. Nature is the source of all true knowledge. She has her own logic, her own laws. She has no effect without cause nor invention without necessity. More than 500 years on from Leonardo da Vinci, we are still abide by his view, namely that creating art involves some conscious or human provenance. For example, Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines art as the, quote, the conscious use of skill and creative imagination, especially in the production of aesthetic objects, end quote. Artificial intelligence, however, challenges both da Vinci and Webster's definitions. Artificial intelligence has made inroads in each of the seven categories of art, architecture, cinema, literature, painting, music, sculpture, and theater, and in doing so has stirred debate about the nature and value of AI-created art and the potential consequences for the entertainment industry, its workers, and its consumers. Take the writer's strike, for example. Since May of this year, the strike has ground to a halt production of TV series, movies, and even live late-night TV shows. One of the key issues at play is about the use of AI. Although the Writers Guild of America has accepted the inevitable use of AI in writing scripts, it insists that AI-generated storylines or dialogue should not be regarded as, quote, literally material, end quote, a contractual term underpinning the recognition of writing credits as well as residual payments for scripts or any other stories the writer produces. Actors who joined the writer's strike in July are likewise concerned that the studios would leverage AI to generate their likeness and or voice in movies and shows, thus circumventing the traditional royalties or wages they would otherwise receive. Although both concerns are legitimate, AI-produced screenplays or AI-generated actors are for now mediocre at best. In AI-generated movies like The Frost, the AI-animated actors are awkward, with stilted and somewhat uncoordinated movements. And so far, no AI-generated novels or stories have been shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize. So are there more effective uses of AI in the entertainment industry? Yes, perhaps. If we consider AI's use in the production versus the artistic aspects, for example, AI facial recognition technology can make post-production edits such as color correction or retouching faster, cheaper, and better. AI can also make props or create backgrounds from scratch without the tedious and time-consuming manual labor otherwise involved. There is no doubt that the coming AI revolution will disrupt the entertainment industry, eliminate some jobs, and create others. The question is, which ones? Are there consequences we should anticipate and encourage, or in some cases mitigate? And if so, how? Our guest today is Nestor Masley. He is a fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation, a technology and policy think tank, 
and the research manager at the Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence at Stanford University, where he manages the AI Index and Global AI Vibrancy Tool. He also leads research projects that study artificial intelligence in the context of technical advancement, ethical concerns, and policymaking. By developing tools that track the advancement of AI, Nestor hopes to make the AI space more accessible to policymakers. Nestor also speaks frequently about trends in AI. He has delivered presentations about the AI Index to teams at the World Economic Forum, the Center for Data Ethics and Innovation, and the Global Arena Research Institute. He has also testified before Canada's House of Commons Standing Committee on Access to Information, Privacy, and Ethics on the use and impact of facial recognition technology in Canada. Welcome, Nestor. Thank you guys for having me. Super excited to be here. So as Alexa mentioned um, in the intro, the Hollywood writer's strike has been going on since May with actors joining in July. And are the fears that they've expressed um, reasonable or overblown? And from your perspective, if so, why? So before I kind of launch into any pontificating, I'll kind of note that these are my own opinions and not those of my wonderful employer at Stanford. I mean, I think that I would say some of the fears are are warranted. I mean, this technology is getting better. This technology is getting sharper. And I think as was alluded to in, in the introduction, even though at the moment, the technology is, I think, quite far away from making films that I think people would actually want to watch. I mean, I think when you watch some of these AI produced films now, it's more just cool to think that a computer could have produced this rather than actually something that you would put on on a Friday evening if you're looking for some high quality entertainment. But I mean, the technology is going to get better. I think we can expect that for a couple of reasons. I think first and foremost, a lot of the improvements that have been made to these generative AI systems in the last three, four years have been made possible through scaling. Basically, the companies that have produced these systems realize that if you train them on more data and stronger computational infrastructure, they will be better performing. And there's still a lot more data that these systems can be trained on. So just by virtue of that fact alone, I think we can expect improvements. And that's not even necessarily taking into account the potential algorithmic improvements as well that can drive progress. So I mean, these tools are going to get better. And I think by virtue of the fact that they are going to get better, I think actors and screenwriters, I think, do have some cause for concern. But there's also a lot of other questions that goes into what the role of screenwriters is going to be in the future. And perhaps that's something that we can unpack a little bit today. I think those kinds of questions depend a little bit on what the incentive of some of these studios are, what we as a society come to expect from entertainment. And more broadly, what, you know, what as a whole is going to happen in the entertainment space. So there's a lot of kind of other considerations that I think go into this question as well. Yeah, I mean, Alexa mentioned a couple of ways in which AI can impact the industry, uh, the entertainment industry, both positively and, and negatively. Uh, before we get to unpacking, maybe would you like to highlight maybe some other potential consequences of the use of AI in art and entertainment? Yeah, I mean, I think one positive consequence that perhaps people don't necessarily talk about is it maybe could actually make artists more creative. Maybe it's going to free them up to do art that is really, truly creative and exciting. And what I mean by that is perhaps you can imagine a world in which in five years, a screenwriter for a late night show 
is their job is going to be to ask chat gpt or some equivalent model like give me 10 monologue jokes on you know the president's recent scandal and then they're going to look at the 10 jokes maybe pick the two that they think are the most promising and then workshop them so maybe in that process they can become more efficient and also generate better ideas and you're seeing this actually in the domain of computer science and coding there was a really interesting survey that was done by github that asked different users of one of GitHub's generative coding tools, Copilot, to rate what effect this kind of tool had on their workflow. And this was basically a text-to-code system that you could say, like, I want text for this code, and the system would give you that. And one of the biggest responses was that, well, actually, this system really freed me up to do much more creative coding and to kind of concentrate my attention on harder problems. So perhaps if AI is going to be doing a lot of the dirty work, so to speak, in the creative process, maybe artists can be freed up to do truly creative things and to think about hyper interesting things. On the other side of the equation, however, I would say that if we're kind of fine with producing art that is just kind of like a let's say regurgitation of what we've already been doing as in like if we're fine with film being about like having a 30th or a 31st marvel film instead of because that's not going to happen without ai <laughs> no i mean we don't we don't necessarily need ai for that but I mean, AI can only, I think, really produce something that it is kind of seen to a degree. I mean, it would be, I haven't read anything to suggest that AI could become the new Picasso, for instance, and or the new Wes Anderson and really kind of generate something that the world has not seen before. If we expect from art, the kind of the Wes Andersons, the Pablo Picassos, the kind of the visionary artists that have reinvented and reimagined what it means to be an artist, then I still think there's a lot of room for artists, screenwriters to do cool things. But if we're content with kind of art that is just, you know, a reproduction of what we've seen before already, then I think screenwriters have a bit more cause of concern. But that question more broadly depends on what the incentives of the studios are and kind of what we, what kind of standards we hold for art as a society. You wrote a, uh, a piece for um, CG, and it's called Authorship is Here to Stay, Although AI Will Change What That Means. Um, in that, you refer to a, uh, a novella, I believe, that was created with um, Story Engine. Yeah, it's one of, the, um, one of the generative AI systems, yeah. Right. It was like a cyberpunk novella that was written over a single weekend. Um, and now kind of circling back to screenwriters and uh, and writers in general, what do you mean, you know, that the authorship is going to change? And I almost toyed, um, you know, writing uh, that this opener was actually written by a human. So yeah. are we going to face a future where later on, and maybe in a couple of years, even sooner, we're going to have pieces that have to clearly be marked as no this was actually written by a human versus you know ai generated i mean perhaps i think it kind of depends again what artists prefer and what kind of standards they would want to hold i mean i would say that in certain ventures it it would make sense to kind of use some of these generative tools i think it can help you in the creative process it could maybe let's say 
as I said kind of earlier, take care of a lot of the kind of mundane work that exists. I mean, I just think that as a whole, people that are in creative industries are going to have to be honest with themselves about the fact that this technology is here. And I think they're going to have to be comfortable using this technology. There is a fellow at Stanford and a member of the AI Index Steering Committee called Eric Brynjolfsson that studies the economic impact of AI. And he has a good line where he says that, you know, machine learning and AI is not going to replace all human managers, but it's going to replace those that aren't interested in working with AI. So it might be one of those things where now people are going to have to actually use these tools and work them into their workflow. And again, that can be positive. For instance, it can get writers to be more productive. And if studios, you know, say to themselves like, hey, we want more films, we want more TV series, we want to kind of increase our output, then these tools can be a great way to kind of augment what can be done. Whereas if they kind of have a desire to merely automate work and kind of keep the level of consumption at, at what it is, then it kind of introduces a different problem. And I think that's really kind of what, what is at the key to this discussion, at least from an intellectual perspective, where are we going with this technology? Is it going to augment what humans can do? Or is it merely going to automate what we are already doing? And sometimes companies, if they want to save money, and if they're thinking from a short-term perspective, are going to go more for automation. But I think augmentation is really where the richest fruits are to be had, because that's where you can kind of do things that before we haven't even done before. So I think that um, another area that we can't really step away from is the question of rights. And I think that, you know, when we look, just, just look at the role of sort of AI and visual generation, there's, there's sort of at least two branches to look at. One is if they make, if, if an AI makes a, something like the Frost movie with completely generated AI characters that are completely fabricated from everything it studied, um, it, that's different than if an AI takes, you know, Harrison Ford's image and either makes him look 30 years younger or puts him in entirely new contexts. Because if, if, if a, a new movie comes out starring Harrison Ford, even though Harrison Ford isn't here, um, then it's that the economic driver really is it's Harrison Ford's likeness. So um, it seems to me that there's a question of, you know, who who owns their likeness is part of the is part of the challenge. And and even in the context of the the um, created characters where where did the where what was the ai trained on in order to generate the characters that it's that it's using yeah i mean i think the latter question is actually more fundamental than the the first one because i mean all of these ai generative systems especially the ones that are producing images they are trained on a corpus of images that have already been existed and all of those images have in some capacity been produced by humans and I mean, now we're starting to see a lot of lawsuits and legal cases concerning this issue. It, it becomes especially kind of pernicious and tricky when we think about the kind of unfair reality that like the work artists may have previously done might have been used to train models that might be putting these artists out of business to a degree. So, and I think that kind of speaks to a, another question, another challenge with these AI systems is that they are you know, they're now here and they're now making their presence felt in a way that they hadn't been before. I think this is one of the big themes that I've seen 
working at the AI index the last few years is that I think 10 years ago, 15 years ago, AI was a technology that held a lot of promise, but it was still something that was kind of in the lab, whereas now it's finally here. And we're waking up to the technology being here in different ways. On the one hand, we're starting to see its positive effects. AI in the last year has been used to accelerate scientific progress in a lot of domains. You know, people are using chat GPT as part of their regular workflow. On the other hand, there's all these kind of thorny legal issues that also arise as a result of this technology being here and really kind of challenging conceptions of like what it means to be human, what it means to produce. I was working on a project or I am working on a project at the moment that is looking at analyzing some AI related legal cases in the United States. And there was one case a couple of years ago that concerned the question of can a idea that is generated by an AI system be patentable? And the US courts ruled no, because if you read the text of the US Patent Act, the only people that can actually patent an idea are persons or ideas have to generate from persons. And one of the plaintiffs in these cases was saying like, well, the act was written at a time in which we couldn't even have conceptualized that non-human entities could generate ideas. And the courts was kind of like, yeah, well, that's fair, but it's not our job to make the laws. And I think that case is just illustrative of the fact that a lot of the ways in which we conceptualize interacting with technology presumes a world in which AI is not able to do what it is currently able to do. And I think we really need to kind of sit and think to ourselves, how are we going to change things and how are we going to prepare ourselves for this new world where things look a lot different than they did before? You mentioned that case and it reminded me just recently on August 18th, a federal court ruled that AI generated generated artwork cannot be copyrighted um, because the same same reason that you mentioned on the patents that uh, this really extended only to human beings. And as you say, now, you know, we could, it might make sense for now when AI isn't necessarily um, that creative or the kinds of art that is, somebody was showing me today a background on Google Meets, you know, and she had put up uh, it was supposed to be a picture of hands and pencils. The pencils were beautifully rendered. The hand was some like hor horrible, like object that didn't even resemble a hand other than the skin tone. So it's not there yet. Uh, and we know that our laws always are behind technology. So in the world, let's say five years from now, when hopefully AI is much more advanced, um, do you think we ought to read rethink those laws and think about whether certain AI should be copyrighted or not? Yeah, I mean, I think we kind of have to. I mean, we don't really have a choice. Like this technology is here and it's already changing the way in which we're doing things. And I think it just kind of, it goes even beyond copyright issues. But I think one of the biggest fears about AI, and this again, really kind of goes to the heart of this discussion of screenwriting is are people going to be losing their jobs? And I, you know what the funny thing is, you know, I think that AI developments recently, to a degree, have caught a lot of people in the augmentation versus automation space a bit by surprise. Because if you were reading this literature 10, five years ago, there was always this assumption that the people that were most at risk were kind of low skill routine workers, people that were, you know, flipping burgers or maybe cleaning toilets or working on factory assembly lines. It was going to be those kind of jobs that were going to go first. The creative ones were going to be safe. 
But fast forward now, you know, it's still hard to get a robot to like reliably flip a burger in McDonald's, but ChatGPT can do a lot of creative work, like, you know, watch out lawyers, watch out writers, watch out me. Like, you know, my profession is is also kind of threatened by this tool. So I think that's kind of a surprising, a surprising take. And this kind of goes back to the point that, yeah, we need to kind of think about new ways of regulating, new ways of doing things. I mean, we also need to think about ways in which existing incentives and existing modes of operation might kind of lead to particular outcomes that we think are pernicious or negative to a certain degree. So for example, in the US tax code, it is much more favorable to invest in capital than it is to invest in labor because capital tends to be taxed at a much lower rate than labor. And basically that means that you know, if you have labor goods like workers, you're paying more tax than you might necessarily be on capital. So if you're a company, you might have a lot of incentives to invest in AI at the expense of workers, right? But if we rewrite some of those laws, maybe also think about ways in which we need to be giving workers the opportunity to reskill. That is, that's something that I think is super important and super necessary in this discussion. I think there's also like a broader question of like, I mean, I think automation and new technological developments, they always change the nature of work. That's just kind of been a human reality. There's maybe a question of like, is AI really going to change it more so than any kind of technology before? I mean, I think there is an active debate on this. I'm still optimistic that there is going to be some kind of work just because I think humans are always looking to make their lives better and increase the standard of living. But I think that maybe in a world in which AI can do a lot of things for us, there's perhaps a need to kind of reevaluate what it even means to work. And I think that in the Western world, especially in America, as things like religion, kind of sense of patriotism, like sense of wanting to build a family, as these like traditional core values have eroded, and there's a lot of literature on this fact, people have turned more towards work as a source of meaning. But what do we do in a world in which perhaps AI is going to be doing all of the work for us. Maybe there's a need to fundamentally reorient values, but that's not something necessarily governments can take care of. That's perhaps a, a broader question we're going to have to all wrestle with at the end of the day. Maybe we should talk a little bit about potential guardrails that you might believe are needed for the use of AI in entertainment and creative media. I mean, um, do you think that there are, that we need some kinds of guardrails and do you think they should be implemented as regulation or do you think maybe as self-regulation? Well, it's hard to say. I think that on the one hand, I mean, it would be great if some of these companies could act ethically and responsibly in regards to kind of using AI. But I think companies are very often going to do what serves their financial interests the best. So I think, yeah, sometimes it might be necessary to kind of have certain legal provisions that are in place to better kind of safeguard workers. What those provisions are exactly, I don't necessarily know. And that's something I'd have to kind of meditate on and think about a little bit more. But I think that on like a fundamental level, I think people that are in creative fields that are threatened about AI, I think there have to be kind of discussions on the employer-employee level about ways in which these tools are going to be used, what the expectation is surrounding these tools, and you could imagine perhaps a degree of protection for those workers, but also giving those workers opportunities to reskill themselves if they perhaps need to learn how to operate some of these tools. 
So yeah, I think that I think some kind of some kind of regulation is going to be important because I think that the real danger here is a world in which a lot of people are out of work very suddenly because this new technology is here. And I don't really think that's a world that we want to be in just because mass employment tends to carry with it a lot of negative effects. So I would say definitely some kind of guardrails are needed. It's tough to know exactly what those kinds of guardrails might be on a specific level when it comes to creative fields. But I think it kind of starts by building kind of consciousness among both employers and employees that this technology is here. And I think really emphasizing that this technology should not be thought of an uh, thought of as an adversarial one. That again, like, you know, the best case scenario is that we use this technology to do things that we previously couldn't do. We basically use it in tandem with human capabilities to kind of get us to an even higher level than before. But I think that has to be made clear. And I think if companies can understand that, then I would be optimistic that we could safeguard the rights of workers and put people in a position to really develop themselves a lot more and get a lot a lot more out of this technology. I think you've already talked about a couple of guardrails, you know, if you will. One uh, you mentioned was uh, rebalancing the incentives for companies so that um, they are incented to invest in their people uh, rather than just investing in capital. Uh, mm-hmm. And also um, incentives to to help companies upskill their workers. There was an ad uh, just recently for for Netflix. It sort of made news: nine hundred thousand dollars for an AI product manager. Um, that kind of tells you where things might be going. Um, what are the new jobs that you think are going to come up aside from you know the obvious AI product manager? But what are some of the jobs that you think? are going to be necessarily new? And what are some of the jobs that you think um, are going to go by the, the wayside? It's a great question. I mean, I don't think there is going to be, no, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be some jobs that are completely new, but that's that's kind of a very hard thing to kind of imagine and conceptualize. I think the most immediate short-term thing that we're going to see is a lot of existing jobs are going to kind of require some kind of AI familiarity, right? So for instance, maybe if you're a marketing manager and your previous job was to develop marketing campaigns, you're going to have to show proficiency with some of these generative AI tools and using those tools to kind of develop marketing campaigns. Maybe if you were an industrial designer and before you did all this work by scratch, maybe there's going to be an expectation that you could use one of these systems to kind of help you with some of your work. Perhaps if you're gonna be a doctor, there's an expectation that you use AI medical imaging as a potential tool that could help augment the flow of your work. So I think that's kind of like one of the key ideas and one of the key points is that I think the jobs, there's gonna be a lot of similar jobs, but I think there's gonna be an expectation now that you know how to work with some of these tools and integrate AI into the kind of process and the flow. In terms of what kind of jobs are going to be threatened, well, again, I think the question of threat depends more broadly on like incentives and what if these companies perhaps are just kind of looking to fatten their bottom line in the immediate term or if they're kind of thinking longer term. 
because you know you could imagine for instance a marketing manager maybe in the past they had as a job for instance they needed to sell a product for their company and they had to generate five different marketing campaigns maybe that task would have taken a marketing manager a week to do before and with an ai perhaps they can get the ai to generate different ideas and they can kind of take the time down to two days this gives you an extra time to do things now the question becomes like do you stay at the same level are you okay to just say like well you know we're going to be done with this project or our company is going to be pushing for more productivity and an increase in the kind of work that is being done and i think that's that's what's going to happen i mean i think you know there's a very famous prediction from the British economist John Keynes that, you know, in the 2000s, we'd all be working 15 hour work weeks because technology would get so much better that, you know, we'd have so much time on our hands. But what happens inevitably is 100 years ago, when you didn't have a washing machine, you wear a shirt five times before you wash it because washing is very taxing. But now in an era in which it is so easy to wash a shirt, you wear it once and you kind of move on to something else. So but you throw it out these days. <laughs> fast, fast. Yeah, I was going to say. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I think those kind of standards change. So I'm optimistic that that's going to happen. I think there's going to be an increase in productivity. And I think we're already seeing that. But I mean, if we're kind of looking at the worst case scenario, I think some of the jobs that are potentially threatened now are some of the creative ones, right? So like, you know, jobs that are necessitate writing in some capacity, and again, we're still writing artistic generation, whatever that may be. We're still kind of at a stage, however, where I don't think it is completely possible to kind of leave humans out of the loop. Even that novella example that I cited in this article for CG, that author basically, I think, had to, I forget what the exact figure was. I think that author had to generate, I think, 6,000 words of her own text to basically get the novella to produce 22,000 words because basically the author was consistently iterating like asking the system to do x the system would produce something and very often it was error prone or repetitive i think the author had noted like she had lost count of the number of times the ai had said that they would want to chill to go up someone's spine so you know <laughs> we're, we're still not at this level where we could completely take these systems out of the loop but you probably have to look at the kind of work that these systems can already do. And they're they're good at some of these knowledge generation tasks. So perhaps those are the ones where we need to be a bit more kind of skeptical of and a bit more kind of cautious of. Yeah, fundamentally, it comes down to uh, the fact that most of our world is is built around the, the, basic, the basic dichotomy of there are things that only people can do, and then there's yeah. everything else. So if you look at things like copyright around you know, content of websites, the expectation is that fair use is, you know, fair use by people. And, and that the only thing that people might do mechanically is reproduce it, right? So all of the copyright law is about thou shalt not reproduce. And now we have a situation where AIs can consume it and train models and benefit from, for instance, the entire Getty library of images. Um, so, so there's this, this, odd construct where the AI systems, which are not people, are consuming the data in a way that formerly only humans could do something reasonably well with. Um, and, and I think that's at the heart of the challenge around, you know, our copyright law isn't isn't up to date in terms of allowing an AI generated thing to be copywritten. But I want to draw a little bit from your AI index report from this year from the 2023. Um, 
one of the notes uh, is that the world's best new scientist might be AI because AI models are starting to rapidly accelerate scientific progress. Uh, we're used to aid in hydrogen fusion and improve the efficiency matrix manipulation and generate new antibodies. Um, those things sound like things that, um, well, at least much of the, the sort of research that we might be thinking of happening in the corporate world is around, you know, drug manufacturer and whatnot. And I'm pretty sure that drug manufacturers are going to want to make sure that these things are, you know, not copyrightable in that instance, but that they can protect the intellectual property in it. So, um, that was kind of circuitous. Many things that you might want to dive into in that. Anything from the, so what is the AI index to um, AIs, non-humans, and what do we do with them in our legal system? Yeah, sure. So yeah, the AI index is kind of my day job. So it's a report that comes out once every year. I like to say that it is objectively the world's best report on trends in AI. But of course, I have to say that because I write this report. But it's been around for five years. It's a report that tracks, distills, collates information on trends in AI. And it really looks at trends in AI from a diversity of perspectives, looking at trends in policy, economics, diversity, technical performance. And it's supervised by a steering committee of really reputable AI thought leaders, people like Jack Clark, who's a co-founder of Anthropic, Ray Perot, who's a distinguished research scientist at SRI, and a lot of individuals of that nature. And one of the kind of findings that you touched on is, again, the fact that like AI is now being used to really accelerate science. And I think that's an interesting example because I think it kind of really shows you what AI can do and like in what particular ways can AI be really useful and really kind of helpful for, for humans. And some of the examples we talk about are like, for instance, in the case of this acceleration of fusion science, nuclear fusion is something that holds a lot of potential because it's a way in which theoretically clean energy could be generated at a limitless level. Now, typically to kind of achieve fusion, you need to use a tokamak, which is a machine that controls and contains heated hydrogen plasma. Now, part of the problem is that the plasma that is produced in these machines is very unstable and it has to be monitored constantly and it's really hard to know like how you optimally manage the monitoring of these kinds of systems so DeepMind used a reinforcement learning algorithm where it basically kind of did thousands of thousands of different simulations of like what the optimal management procedure was and in the process figured out a way to to do that and i think that's kind of illustrative and indicative of the fact that there are certain jobs or certain kind of intellectual tasks that just require like brute force efficiency. It's also like the thing with like drug discovery. Sometimes it's just good to have like a system that is just running the numbers on like, what are all the permutations of different protein compounds that we can kind of put together? I mean, that's work that a human could do, but it would take a human a very long time to do that. So I think that's really one of these domains where you talk about ways in which AI could be incredibly useful as kind of looking at kind of all these different options in a way that, you know, if we were to ask a human to do it, it would be really difficult and really, really challenging. Um, we've covered a lot and and, and uh, the AI index will definitely include a link to that. So our folks can, uh, can check that out. Sounds like a very interesting report. But if you had to leave our audience with 
some main takeaways of the discussion, um, either your projections of what's going to happen or recommendations, what would you say they would be? Well, I think it's fairly simple and straightforward. I would say that on a broad level, and I've already alluded to this and touched on this before, but we're kind of really in a time in which AI is here. It's This isn't a tool that is just kind of a hypothetical maybe. It's something that's in all of our lives now very tangibly. And I think oftentimes there's this misconception with technology that technology is something scientific, that it's kind of outside of the domain of society and humanity. But all technology is fundamentally human in that its meaning and its essence is fundamentally gained from interaction with humans. And human interaction is fundamentally value-laden. You know, we can decide, for instance, maybe we want to live in a world in which we freely give our data to Amazon and Netflix if it means that Amazon can have great recommendation for products or Netflix can like identify exactly the show that you want to watch in any given time. Maybe we're okay with that from a value perspective, but maybe in a different world, we feel that there's a value of privacy that should be had and we shouldn't be surrendering this data. So my point is, is that like AI is here, but how it is going to develop is fundamentally going to be a question that is going to be left up to us, especially in democratic societies like the United States and Canada. People at the end of the day have the capacity to make decisions about what kind of people are in power. And we need to be thinking about what we want with this technology so that we can kind of steer it in the way that we find most aligns with our values. Very good point. Very good point. And, and you know, Leslie and I have talked about this many times where technology, what no matter how you create it, ultimately how it's used is really up to uh, up to the people. Absolutely. And it may not be the way it was intended. Absolutely. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. No, it was great to be here. And I was really, really honored to have been invited and really happy to have had this really great discussion. Thank great. you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this Tech Sequences podcast. We are Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. You can reach us by email, techsequences at techsequences.org. We'd love to hear from you to know what you thought about this episode or ideas for future episodes. Tech Sequences, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe through your favorite podcasting service.